Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host, Isla, and every episode I sit down with a panel of experts in marine science and conservation to answer one of your questions about sharks and the oceans. Now this week, make sure you have a full tank because we are taking a deep dive into the huge and very complex topic of the global shark fin trade to find out exactly what it is, why it exists and what it means for shark populations across the world. I had the immense privilege of being able to pick the brains of international experts on the subject of trade in shark products and shark conservation, Ali Hood and Dr. Diego Cardenosa. Ali has worked in marine conservation for more than 20 years and her extensive career includes roles in the UK's Marine Biological Association and the British Antarctic Survey. In 2002, she joined the Shark Trust, a fantastic conservation charity based in the UK, focused on safeguarding the future of sharks through research, education, political action and collaboration. Ali is now the Director of Conservation for the Trust and works with a variety of stakeholders, including governments, NGOs and industry partners, to develop sustainable fisheries management and secure protection for sharks across the world. She was just awarded the International Fund for Animal Welfare's Marine Conservation Award for her astounding commitment to shark conservation, which is absolutely incredible. And Diego is an outstanding and globally renowned scientist studying various aspects of the international shark trade, including the use of DNA and forensics tools to basically identify which species are being traded and where they have come from. His work is helping to detect and mitigate illegal activity by making it easier for law enforcement officers in major trade hubs to identify threatened species on the market. And not only does Diego work at the international level, but he also works with local communities, such as artisanal shark fisheries in Guyana, to develop sustainable monitoring and management practices that work at all scales of governance. I could have honestly talked to Diego and Ali all day. They have so much knowledge and I learn so much from them. Not only do we discuss finning in great depth, but we also talked about how it is linked to a much bigger problem in overfishing, which is the biggest threat to sharks worldwide. We talk about some of the major problems with the shark trade as a whole, the impact on sharks, and how we might begin to overcome these issues to better protect vulnerable species. It's an immense challenge, but one that so desperately needs to be solved to safeguard the future of global shark populations. Now, before we get into the episode, I just wanted to drop a very, very quick note to mention that there are a couple of sound issues in this episode. So life does happen sometimes and Diego had to catch a last minute flight, but luckily for us, he was able to fit us in. Um, But he is sitting in the airport while we recorded this episode, so you can hear a little bit of background noise. So it's not a huge problem, but I just wanted to make you aware before we jumped into the episode. All right, so we have quite a lot to get through. So without further ado, let's dive in. Thank you guys so much for coming on to chat to me. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, And today we do have a quite a complex and meaty topic to get into, which is the shark fin trade pun not intended (laughs) there um which can get quite serious you know we are talking about 
one of the elements of one of the biggest, the biggest threats to sharks, which is overfishing in this episode. So, you know, it is it is quite a serious episode. But before we get into all of that, I do have a couple of questions that we like to ask all of our guests, which just helps us to sort of get into the swing of things and get into the start of the podcast. So my first question is, in your own words, who you are and what you do. So Ali, if we can start with you. Hi, well, my name is Ali Hood and I'm Director of Conservation for the Shark Trust. And the Trust is a, a charity based in the UK, but our work is international in its, in its interests. Um, we work on issues of sustainable fisheries management and wildlife protection, all underpinned by issues of trade, um, consumption, aspects like that. Um, so my work is very diverse. I deal with funding, project development, delivery campaigns. And as a science-based organisation, my personal work is focused on conservation advocacy. So working to persuade governments and industry and stakeholders to address issues of overfishing and the need for wildlife protection. Fantastic. And, and Diego, the same question to you. So I'm Diego Cardenosa. I'm currently a postdoctoral associate at Florida International University. And the, the main of my work, uh, even during my PhD, was directed to um, shark fin surveys in the largest markets of fins in Southeast Asia, mostly, like most more specifically, Hong Kong and China. And during the last years, we, we've conducted survey in those markets and also created uh, tools for law enforcement officers around the world to detect illegal trade, especially on site-assisted sharks. Brilliant. And I, I can't think of two better people to talk to me about this question today. Both the areas that, you in, that you're in are bringing such different perspectives to this conversation. So, you know, Ali, you're talking from the perspective of working with governments and campaigning and policy. And Diego, you're talking from the scientific perspective. And, you know, we'll we'll, we'll get into that later on in the episode. But Something that is very interesting to me and very interesting to our listeners as well is how you got to be where you are. So how you kind of landed in the positions that you're in. So um, Ali, I wondered if I could ask that question to you. So, you know, how did you how did you wind up as director of conservation for the Shark Trust? What was your what did your career journey look like? But that's a really it's a fascinating question for a number a number of reasons. But I've been with the Shark Trust for coming on twenty years now, um, and we've a, a great team of people both within the trusts and within our collaborations, working with groups and individuals in many countries around the world. And given the challenges faced by sharks and rays, the work that we do remains really fresh. So my time here for for this long has been because I'm constantly challenged with with what we're trying to achieve as an organisation even if, if some of those objectives are in, incredibly hard fought. Prior to the Shark Trust, I worked for the Marine Biological Association here in the UK, and I worked for a couple of years on the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. Um, in terms of academic approach and, and pathways, I studied for a graduate and postgraduate qualifications, actually by chance, here in Plymouth as well. So my life has revolved back round to Plymouth, it's, it's down in the, the southwest of the UK, and it's a fantastic place to be if you're interested in marine science and conservation. Yeah, it is a, it is a real um, marine hub of the UK, Plymouth, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. There's so many institutes, um, the opportunity for students to volunteer, to engage, 
in a wide range of, of different issues and activities is, is so positive. It really helps you see what's available and, and what paths are, are, are on offer to you. Mm-hmm. And was, was marine conservation something that you were always interested in from a young age or was it something that you kind of came to a little bit later on? No, I think definitely I was, a, as a child, a young child, I lived in Cyprus. Oh, wow. And, um, I spent many, many an hour sitting on the seabed, quite literally with a, a rock in my lap so I could stay down for longer. <laughs> and I think that really set my my interest in the marine environment. I, I, I never thought of doing anything different, to be honest, and nobody ever tried to steer me off that route. But I'm of the Cousteau generation, you know, it was so inspiring to see what was what was out there and to learn what what needed to be done to help um, preserve and protect and, and safeguard the future of our of our marine wildlife. What an amazing beginning to marine conservation as well. And I, I love that picture of you mm. just uh, <laughs> clinging, clinging onto a rock <laughs> under the water being like, please, I don't want to go up yet. <laughs> it's exactly that my parents always say to people she'll come up when she needs to don't worry about her <laughs> your, your parents were very trusted I don't think mine would have been too happy about that <laughs> um but Diego how about you was was um was science was a scientific career was that always uh always your path or you know how how did you get into how did you get into a career in science yeah, like, um, I don't know if like science was always my path, but always like sharks are, have always been in my, in my, uh, let's say my brain since I, since I can remember, honestly. So uh, as I grew up, I, un- I kind of like understood that science was the correct path uh, for what I wanted to do. And I think I followed a normal academic career like most scientists would do. So I did a bachelor's degree in biology. Then I did a master's degree in uh, biological sciences. Uh, both theses in both degrees were uh, shark related. So for my for my uh, bachelor's degree, I studied the effects of habitat loss on juvenile lemon sharks in Bimini, Bahamas, mm-hmm. uh, with Dr. Samuel Gruber. And then for my master's, I studied the genetic population structure of pelagic pressure sharks throughout the pacific coast and then i was i was lucky that i was hired to go and work in fiji for a year uh mm-hmm. in a project by projects abroad where we established like a shark conservation project there in on uh, the south coast of Viti Levu in fiji mm-hmm. and then afterwards i started my phd under the the mentorship of dr damien chapman at stony brook university Mm-hmm. And yeah, now I'm a postdoctoral associate, and I think uh, I will still pursuing the scientific endeavors for for the rest of my career. Yeah, amazing, and some absolutely spectacular places to have worked, especially with someone like uh, Dr. Gruber as well, who you know was such a prominent figure in in shark science and still is now. My next question is potentially quite a difficult one. All of my guests uh, struggle with this one. (laughs) And it is, what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? So, yeah, it's a difficult question because uh, I have the the privilege of uh, experiencing quite a a few ones that come to mind. But I believe the most memorable memorable one would be diving at Martello Island in Colombia. 
Um, I remember I was on a dive with, with one other person and then we saw the schooling hammerheads and they were quite a little bit far from the rock. So we went a little further to get to see them closer. And then when we were returning back to the rock, I was like, oh no, one last glance to the hammerheads. And when I turned back, a whale shark was coming through the school of hammerheads. So I was, <laughs> I was completely, you know, amazed by that. And then we, then we returned back and, and swam with the whale shark surrounded by hammerheads. So I, I think, uh. <laughs> I think uh, yeah, nothing will top that one for me at least. Wow. Oh my goodness. I mean, I've, I've seen the footage of the school and hammerheads and it just looks insane by itself and incredible experience. And then to have the world's largest shark, then just, you know, casually uh, swoop on by at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) That's madness. Ali, how about you? What was your most memorable experience? I do think this is a really unfair question. It's like asking (laughs) someone what their favorite shark is and always refuse to answer that one you can't play favorites it's you know like Diego I've been lucky to spend a lot of time in and under the water um both you know associated to past lives and and you know my own time I mean to be frank as a conservation advocate you don't get to spend a lot of time underwater um we 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 enjoy that experience through our members, through our supporters, through the people we meet, and through through our colleagues who, who are researchers in out there in the water. But for me, one of the things that sprung to mind immediately, and it's kind of the it's kind of the complete polar opposite of of Diego's experience there with a mass abundance of of animals. I was I was privileged to dive um, in the Maldives, and I came up on a safety stop, and it was pure blue water in all directions apart from my buddy, of course. Um, But out there just sitting in line with us was a single barracuda and it was just sitting there stationary, staring at us for this whole period that we had to sit still, which just extended out in my mind because it was just this incredibly pure and clean experience of perfect blue water and this one silverfish just staring us out. And it was, it just really stuck in my, stuck in my head alongside many other experiences, but that one, Total opposite to Diego's abundance, yeah. <laughs> but but it was great. It was just a really awesome experience. Really awesome. Yeah, but that that's why I love asking that question because everybody's as as much as it puts people on the spot, and everyone's like, "Oh no, I can't think of this." <laughs> it, everyone everyone's experience is so special for very very different reasons. Mm. We do have a question that we need to answer today, which is, what is the fin trade and what does it mean for sharks? Um, and as as we've already discussed, this is, you know, one element of the biggest threat to sharks globally, which is overfishing. Um, but I really want to spend some time looking at finning itself and, 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 and kind of breaking it down because it is a very, very large and very complex issue. Um, and I imagine, you know, some of some of our listeners might not even realise that that sharks are fished and there are shark products on the global market. So mm. something I'd like to um, start us off with is is by discussing what sharks are fished for. So 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 what products what sh- what products might we find? So so in shark in shark trade, you can find a lot of different aspects. Uh, from international trade to local consumption 
So when a shark gets captured, um, it should get landed whole. That means with the, with the fins naturally attached to their bodies. And then that's where a lot of the supply chains start. So in sharks, you can use the skin. So I've seen skins arriving to Hong Kong, I believe for uh, manufacturing purses or wallets or, you know, like, like any other skin product. You can also find uh, international meat trade of sharks. That's for protein consumption around the world. And you can, you can pinpoint two different regions where most of the shark meat is being consumed, which is South America and Europe. In South America, Brazil specifically. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you have the fins, which is the most valuable product of the shark by weight. And most of the fins get shipped to Southeast Asia where they are consumed for a local dish, which is a shark fin soup. So I think those can be, those cover most of the international trade of, of sharks that you can see. And definitely the one that has been portrayed in the media and, and, and rightly so because it's it's been a, a large threat for sharks for many many decades is the international sharking trade specifically mm-hmm. to china and hong kong but as diego said there's a, a very complex trade there a lot of which does start on that first point of landing um and then you see whether it's meat fins skin cartilage oil all going off into to different um different dimensions of, of, of the market yeah, I think I think your listeners would be really surprised as to where shark products do turn up. So in in some day to day items that they might encounter from cosmetics um, through to supposed health products. So shark fin products do appear um, across the market in so many forms and not just in the in the sort of what would come to mind first. So fins or, or meat sold on a market. Um, and I think it's really important that people appreciate that broad use of, of, of shark products, each of which has a different driver within the trade. Yes, it's interesting that you mentioned the cosmetics and, and other products that we might use in our day-to-day basis, in our daily lives. Mm. Um, a few years ago, I, I did a study where I analyzed pet food specifically and cosmetics. And I found... It, the results, I couldn't believe what I found. Basically, 70% of the products that I tested had mako shark, which is very, uh, it was crazy. So, yes. so cats, our cats are eating mako shark, <laughs> which, is, which is quite striking because in the labels of the pet foods, you don't see shark or shark-related products or shark meat, anything that is related to, to let the consumer know that you are buying a product that contains shark. And also... Mm-hmm. We tested um, some cosmetics that in the label said squalene. They, they, they actually had squalene. And I wanted to see if I can find some traces of DNA within the cosmetics. And I found blue shark and scallop hammerhead in cosmetics that yeah. we put on our faces, our skins uh, every day. So mm. that's another one that was quite, quite striking. For anyone listening who's wondering, squalene is the the liver oil that is using a huge variety of things from face serums to uh to lubricants you know a a lot of an astounding amount of things in the cosmetics industry it's unbelievable the amount of shark products that are 
in you know the day-to-day things that we use you've now you've now got me worried that about uh my own dog's food as well. I was going to say Haggis's food, but then I remembered that not everyone realises my dog is called Haggis and that's probably a little bit confusing for listeners. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, to to bring us back to the concept of thinning, I mean, a lot of the issues that we're talking about, you know, they they all come into one when we're talking about thinning as well because thinning is part of, part of overfishing. But you touched on this very, uh, touched on this briefly earlier, Ali, which was, that thinning the definition of thinning as it stands at the moment is you know different to what Diego was talking about there where you land a shark with the fins on and then remove the fins when it's been brought back into shore and so can you can you explain what the what the definition of thinning actually is? Yeah so I mean shark thinning um, is the removal of shark fins at sea and the discard of carcass overboard. So the only thing retained is the shark fin. Um, obviously, this is a, a highly wasteful practice and, in fact, a major barrier to effective shark fisheries management. We then have um, management processes which involve what they call fin to carcass ratios, where you are allowed to remove the fin at sea, but you must retain the carcass of the shark and um, you can dress that carcass, you can eviscerate it. So you're removing its head. It's just the trunk of the shark is left and the fins are kept separately and they may be kept in primary or secondary fin sets. And I'm sure Diego can go into that in much more detail. Um, but the problems you have there is that you're reliant on um, you're reliant on honesty. You're reliant on people saying, yes, this is one set of fins from one shark. Um, But given you could perhaps transship, so you could take the fins off one vessel and trade them onto another vessel, or you could land them at one port and keep the carcasses for a different port, depending on your markets, it becomes incredibly easy for this system to to be abused. Um, You may have high grading of fins where larger fins are kept with smaller carcasses, or you may, because of the generous nature of the fin to carcass ratio, be able to land more sets of fins i.e. from more sharks, than carcasses, and still be within the limits of of the the regulation. And so this brings us on to something that um, both Diego and I have mentioned, which is landing sharks with their fins still naturally attached. So the shark has to have its fin. It can have what's called a partial cut, where you cut the fin and flap the fins against the carcass. But it eliminates the opportunity for those fins to have been removed, for finning to have occurred in that instance. Um, It eases the burden of enforcement. So if we have a vessel from European nation landing into, say, South Africa or an Indian Ocean port, the enforcement officers there just need to look on the vessel and say fins are attached to the carcasses. They are compliant with that regulation. So it's much, much simpler and feeds a much more quality data into the fisheries management process. And, you know, you rightly keep referencing finning as an element of overfishing to start that effective process of fisheries management. We need to know what's being caught. And um, Mm. as we don't all have Diego's mobile sequencer, um, we we need to be able to identify the sharks as they come into port. And it's incredibly valuable, much easier to identify a shark that still has its fins naturally attached than just the trunk of of a shark with its fins removed. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I I think quite a lot of people are, you know, shocked by what the practice of finning actually entails, because, you know, we hear about fins being sold 
on the market and and for someone that doesn't know much about the process they might just assume that everybody just brings you know the whole shark back to shore and then the the various different parts get processed and then you know sold but the reason why finning gets so much media attention and the reason why it's such a huge issue is because of that you know the quite cruel and 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 brutal nature of it i mean you're 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 cutting the fins off the shark and then throwing the shark back into sea sometimes um so i think a lot of people are, are, are quite shocked by that um but something i wanted to come back to which we did talk about earlier but i just wanted to um talk about it in a little bit more detail is is why people want the fins specifically so what is it about the fins that that make them such a marketable product because as as diego said they are the most valuable shark product on the market so so why do people want fins where is that demand coming from when shark finning started is it was just a matter of uh, getting more price or getting more, more more value of your fishing trip um, every time you go out at sea because you can fill your boat with fins, which mm. at that time were way more valuable than anything else that a shark can can uh, give to you. So if you come back from the sea with a with a with a whole of your ship full of shark fins, that's maximizing the the money that you are gonna get for that fishing trip. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason for it. And the, and the reason that people are, were and are still paying so high for the fins is because it's considered uh, a delicacy in China and Southeast Asia. Basically, it's just for the consumption of the shark fin soup. But also, I just want to say that um, even, even that uh, when you see a lot of the, mm. of the media and like even general public campaigns, advocating against shark finning the the advocation against shark finning started many decades ago mm. and when you see the proportion of sharks now being landed whole versus a few decades ago you can see you can still see millions and millions and millions of sharks being landed with fins naturally attached mm-hmm. but getting rid of the shark finning problem is not solving much of the problems that sharks are facing at the moment right so when you yeah, I was just gonna say when you see pictures still of of shark landings in Spain or Indonesia or India or all these big catching nations, you still see the shark landed hold, but mm-hmm. that's not that's not fixing fixing much of the of the shark fishing mm-hmm. mortality that that shark uh, that sharks have. And with the abolition or like with the shark finning regulations that have been put in place in the in the in recent decades, the amount of shark meat being consumed and traded has been increasing and also the value of the of the meat is increasing so if you see the recent the recent um data that we have for that almost the international shark fin trade and the international shark meat trade move the same amount of money so the meat obviously moves more volume because it's less uh, profitable as the as the fins but in terms of net profits that you can do out of meat and fins uh they're almost at the same point right now so there's not really um a deterrence for i mean there, there's not much of a of a of an idea to keep continue finning if you can have a profitable shark meat trade 
Yeah. So if you if you throw a carcass out of to back to to the sea, you're just throwing money and, and actual money that that is that is being more and more valuable with time. I think I think Diego's touching on some very important points there, and absolutely, there's there's a perception um, with some people who are involved in campaigns, and even we worry that the perception flows into into governments as well that if you address um, the fin trade, then shark conservation issues are solved. And as Diego has rightly said, the meat trade um, is also driving the retention of sharks. And so finning and banning finning and then going on to um, prohibit fin trade doesn't actually result in no sharks being caught and landed because there is a demand there for the meat. And, you know, we also hear um, and um, I'm not not saying this was exactly what Diego was trying to portray there, but that that the um, regulation of finning activities has led to a demand and a market for shark meat. So as more carcasses, yeah, so as more carcasses have been landed, that that has caused a market in itself. Um, I, I would actually caution against um, that, that perspective because we also need to look at the fact that sharks are, are caught both as target species, but also as bycatch with, with other species. Um, and that those primary target species, whether it's swordfish or tuna or others, have declined. And as those species have declined, the importance of the shark meat, um, the sharks as a value to those fisheries has increased. And so you see the decline in swordfish, you see the increase in importance of, say, blue shark, if you're looking at um, Atlantic um, longline fisheries. And it's a really important thing to appreciate there that it's that the regulations haven't been the sole driver of the trade in meat um, and therefore caused, you know, a situation that you could almost say was an own goal. Um, that's not that's not the case. The case here is that the, the, the blue shark have become more valuable to the, the economy of those fisheries because their target species have declined. Well, I guess you can argue for both, right? Or a combination Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a combination, but um, it's always concerning when people... Uh, and I'm, Diego, I'm not suggesting this is what you're doing in any way, but but we often get this this sort of um, leveled at, at at those who are involved in 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 securing or seeking the securing of fins naturally attached that um, that it's the actual regulation of the fin trade that causes um, an increase in retention of carcasses. I mean that that's nonsensical. We can't encourage uh, the continuation of finning to to uh, reduce that that meat trade market. That that's you know. Yeah. I wanted to sort of move us on a little bit to the actual impact on shark species. So from the fin trade, I mean, we know that overfishing is a, is a huge threat to sharks, but I wondered if we could talk about what the what finning actually means for the sharks themselves. So you know, how big of an impact has it had and what does it actually mean for, for sharks in the wild? I, mean, I, th I think that no one would argue that um, the, the fin trade wasn't the driver of many population declines for sharks and that it's the uh, un unknown level and volume of trade that has, well, not of trade, but of, of, of finning activity um, that, that led to, to multiple shark populations declining at paces that, that went to an extent um, unseen um, for, for many, many, many years. Um, I think I think one one uh, let's say one data or one 
value that can give you an idea of how bad the shark fin trade is for sharks is that in the last assessment that the IUCN did for sharks, yeah. the yeah. the baseline for for all elasmobranchs or chondrichthyes was that one third of the species are threatened with extinction. So that means they're either vulnerable, endangered, or critically endangered, right? So that that's one third. When we started this survey of the shark fin markets in Southeast Asia in 2014, when the, the previous assessment was released, already one third of the fin trade was uh, under, and then, uh, under, under threatened categories, right? So in 2014, a fourth of the shark species were threatened with extinction and one third of the shark fin trade was composed of uh, or comprised um, threatened species. Now, the IUCN report says a third of the species globally are threatened with extinction, mm -hmm. but our data in Hong Kong and, and China suggests that 70%, a little over 70% of the fin trade mm -hmm. is comprised by threatened species. So mm -hmm. that's wow. double that's double the baseline for the chondrichthyes globally. So that means that mm. the international shark fin trade is based on threatened species. Two thirds of the international shark fin trade is based on threatened species. So that gives you an idea of how, of how bad or how detrimental this practice is for shark populations. I, I think, you know, th those are really compelling statistics that you've got there. Diego, and I'm assuming the majority of that remaining 30% is blue shark, um, or a great deal of that is blue shark. Yeah, the, the large majority of the trade itself, uh, it's, uh, it's blue shark. More than a third of the, of the, of the things that we analyze in, in the markets are blue shark. But when you, when you check the top 10 species mm -hmm. in trade in terms of how common they are, nine out of 10 are threatened species. Wow. Uh, wow. The only one that is not in threatened categories is the blue shark itself. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, Diego's mentioned a, a recent IUCN publication there, and I'd really recommend people have a look. There's not only the scientific paper, but there are also um, infographics, very accessible products around this paper. And it's mm -hmm. um, Delvi et al. It's 2021 in, in current biology. And, you know, the, the statistic that they, the sort of headline statistic is that, you know, 99.6% yeah. of chondrichthians, so sharks, skates, rays, and chimera, are affected by fishing. And overfishing is the primary threat to 100% of the 391, that's Diego's one third, of species listed in a threat category. I mean, that's incredibly mm -hmm. shocking. And the, the sort of historic start to that process would have been driven by, you know, for many species, by the fin trade. And that meat trade issue has come mm -hmm. in in more recent years. Um, so it, it is, well, it's alarming to say the least. And, and, and many, if not all shark species, they, they, they've not historically been managed in the way of other bony fish. And so they've suffered from this double sort of whammy of being high value targets, um, as well as having no no actual management. Yeah, and there was another paper by the same group of scientists early on. Uh, mm. Yeah, I can I can link to that paper in the show notes. Right, well. where they assess the the oceanic sharks, so that means mm. the open ocean sharks and rays. Yeah, and that one suggested also that um, the population declines of 
of shark populations around the world was 70% in the last, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's the last four decades. Um, and, it, and it was due to an increase of 18 fold of the fishing pressure on those fishes. But then those are oceanic sharks, but when you go and see the status of reef sharks or reef associated sharks, mm. there was a paper uh, by McNeil and et al last year um, that collected all the data from the largest survey mm. uh, of reef associated sharks in the world and show that um, two out of five um, reefs that you go in the, in the world in tropical areas Mm -hmm. have sharks that have been, um, I think mm. they call it functionally extinct. That means mm. the, mm -hmm. the abundance of sharks in those reefs is so low that they cannot fulfill their ecological role anymore. Right. So if you combine those statistics with the statistics of the oceanic sharks, then you can see a pretty bad, yeah. bad picture globally for, for those sharks. Wow, yeah. I think it's also important for, for listeners to understand that this isn't just an issue in tropical waters either, in high seas waters. Mm -hmm. It's also, you know, we're here in the UK. Um, we have a large number of our, of our species around the UK. We have over 80 different species of shark, skate, row and chimera. And a large number of those are also in an IUCN threat category due to overfishing activities. And we're working very hard to improve the management of those species to, to try and facilitate population recovery at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, we we also have the blue shark as well, which we which we've mentioned. The blue shark is a visitor to to UK waters, um, and I mean, personally for me, it was it was hugely shocking to hear, uh, you know, that the blue shark is you know, under such immense pressure from the shark trade. And something as well for our listeners to remember, we've, we've discussed this in previous episodes too, sharks are much longer lived, they're much slower to reproduce, which means that they find it much harder to recover from, uh, from exploitation. Uh, but we are talking about the blue shark there, and the blue shark does have uh, one of the highest reproductive rates of uh, of any shark species if you if you put the fishing pressure on any other shark um yeah i think you will bring them to extinction quite quickly so so the reason that we can still have blue sharks and they're not in threatened categories but near threatened or near or uh yeah near threatened mm -hmm. is because of that reproductive capacity or or production capacity that blue sharks have however i i I do believe that if we keep on the track of the fishing pressure that we're putting on blue sharks, yeah. I believe we'll, we're going to see blue sharks in threatened categories very soon. So in, in the Atlantic, which is a, a, a high seas area, which we've focused a lot of work on in recent years, um, blue sharks are a key element of the fishery there. They make the, the long line fisheries for swordfish, they're the economic um, element of that is what makes them economically viable and they represent about well, the sharks represent over 75 percent of, of the landings within that swordfish fishery um, so blue sharks are incredibly important only in recent years have they been acknowledged as targets within those fisheries and in fact in 2019 working with colleagues in the the, the shark league um, and other partners, we secured through ICAT, so that's the Atlantic High Seas RFMO, a regional fisheries management organisation, 
uh, we secured the first international catch limit for um, for sharks, and that is for the blue shark in the North and South Atlantic. Now, that catch limit was set at the highest end of the scientific advice, so there's definitely room for improvement. But I agree with Diego, if we do not manage this species, even if it is more fecund, even if it does mature earlier, have more young, um, you know, the pressure that it's under will see its populations decline in a, in a significant and devastating um, fashion. And within that same Atlantic fishery, we have mako sharks. And here you have a prime example of two species who have very, very different life history strategies. Blue shark maturing at six years old, mako maturing at 18 years old, having just a small number of pups. Blue shark, much more, uh, much larger litters. Um, and it's really important that both these species are managed in appropriate ways. We need to see no retention. That's the scientific advice for the mako sharks. Whereas the, the blue sharks, as we've said, have a scientific advice for a managed, um, managed take. So it's, it's really important that we address these things. But um, if I may just go back to the reference to bony fish, um, what, I, what I was referencing was that sharks have not had management in the way that bony fish have. So where you've had management for cod or hake or haddock, you have not had the same management for the elasmobranchs. Um, the sharks were being landed with no limits um, and this overfishing, because there was, there was you know, less requirement for recording, um, the populations were under great pressure and we saw due to their life histories, those populations collapse um, as a result and, and it's a very slow process for rebuilding. I wondered if we could explain a little bit about the regulations that currently exist um, but also talk about CITES as well and kind of explain what that is because I know we've mentioned CITES a couple of times throughout this podcast and you know kind of what their what their role what their role is there. You, you can see the shark governance in different uh, levels or yeah so you can see the internet in the at the international level I think CITES or the Convention on International Trading Endangered Species is the one that that is the more rele most relevant for sharks. So CITES, what does is that they they have appendices where you can list species in appendix one or appendix two. So appendix one species are species that are completely banned for any commercial trade or commercial activity, while appendix two species can still be traded, but you have to have certificates and permits that um, basically certified that the catch and the specimens that you're trading are sustainable, are traceable through the supply chain, and they are legal. Mm -hmm. so, um, so yeah, CITES only takes into account international trade. Mm -hmm. But also at the regional level, you can see um, management bodies like Ali was saying, the ICAT, which is the... Yeah. I think it's the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tuna. Um, so those RFMOs, original fisheries management organizations exist in the Atlantic, in the Indian Ocean, you have IOTC, and then you have um, several others in the Pacific Ocean. And those are the ones that regulate uh, the fisheries in those areas, like how much of a shark can you catch or if a shark uh, is banned from any landing or retention, like, for example, the silky shark in ICAT or the thresher sharks in the, in the IOTC. Um, so several, several uh, oceanic shark species are um, managed by these fisheries management bodies, but 
then you can have a discussion whether the compliance uh, and enforcement within the RFMOs is is the right one or not. So I think yes, what, what Diego is saying is is very is very right. So CITES manages the trade, whereas the the fisheries management bodies or organisations are responsible for the management of those fisheries, which includes their their finning regulations. And you know we've seen. Um, improvements in finning regulation over over the last few decades we've we've spoken about this being an issue and regulation coming in over over recent decades the eu for example adopted its first finning ban in 2003 they then revised that in 2013 to move to fins naturally attached away from that fin to carcass ratio that i discussed earlier problematic issue of removal of fins and retention of carcasses at sea um, and we are seeing the regional fisheries management organisations, an increasing number of those adopt fins naturally attached as best practice. Uh, we've seen the GFCM, NAFO, so the Mediterranean, um, NAFO up in the northwest Atlantic, NIAF in the northeast Atlantic, um, the Caribbean. We've seen other, other parts of the world you know, moving to adopt fins naturally attached. And at ICAP, we have... Um, had over 80% support from the ICAT parties. So those nations that are part of ICAT, there's over 52 of those, including the EU. Um, only RFMOs are consensus decision-making for us. So if you have one party who's not keen, then they can block the position of the others. And so this is a huge frustration where we know within ICAT we have significant support for fins naturally attached. But it's not just about the high seas areas. We also need to see domestic adoption and implementation of tighter finning regulations. So where we have um, these nations that are saying, yes, we, we agree with the concept of, of fins naturally attached to ICAP, we need them to look to their own domestic waters and adopt those as national policies. And that, that's, it's really important that um, we then see this, um, the benefit of fins naturally attached applied to coastal species as well as to those high seas fisheries. And then the issue of, of compliance and implementation comes into play across the board. Yeah, you can even see you can even see how difficult and yeah and yeah this is just complicated uh, the enforcement of CITES is. So a few years after the first like highly valuable and highly commercial species were listed on CITES, which was 2013. At the end of 2013 was when they were listed in Appendix Two. I think the enforcement came in later in uh, late 2014. That was the scallop hammerhead, the smooth hammerhead, the gray hammerhead, four beagle, and oceanic white tip. And then a few years later, um, while we kept surveying the markets of Hong Kong and China, you can still see that side-existed sharks are still among the most common shark species in the international shark trade. So that basically means there is still a lot of illegal trade occurring, and you can see it in the number of, of fins and the amount of fins that are being seized by the Hong Kong authorities. For example, last year, I think around May 4, and I know this very precisely because I, I um, defended my PhD thesis in May 5, um, they seized the largest amount of, of, um, of shark fins that came from sighted listed species in a, single, in a single seizure that day which was around 26 tons of silky sharks and pelagic thresher sharks that were coming from Ecuador. So that yeah. gives you an, and that was only one single container. So that gives you an idea of the pressure that, that you know, like of the enforcement and compliance that, that CITES has on, 
on these species, but there are tools and there are efforts that everybody and different organizations and different stakeholders are doing to improve this detection capacity and mm. increase the enforcement and compliance of these regulations throughout the world. I was just going to say, I mean, one of the things that um, I think has improved and is, is seeming to help, and, and Diego, again, have a much clearer idea on this, but is, is the simpler processes of identification of fins. So I was lucky enough to engage in a, a, a fin identification workshop um, and actually firsthand seeing the different fins from these different CITES listed species. Um, it becomes more complicated as more species are listed, but looking at, at the current species listed, it, it's, um, it is possible with the right training to identify the difference. Now, obviously, if you've got large sacks of fins coming through, you know, things can be sorted through that. It can be very, very complicated. But those those simple techniques of, of fin identification now twinned with the much more technological processes, but accessible processes that Diego has been discussing. Um, I, th I think it, it really helps um, de-incentivize bringing fins in in that nature. But there's obviously a long way to go on this, a very long way to go. Yeah, and one, uh, just to add on what Ali said, one encouraging fact that occurred very recently is that, well, in the past, if you bring wildlife trade, illegal wildlife trade to Hong Kong or other places, it was considered a minor crime. So the deterrence for, for illegal traders to do it was very, was very low. Mm. Like if you, if you get caught, you get a small fine, and then, yeah, and everything's fine, let's say. There's, there's not really uh, a deterrence there for, for them to stop doing that. But very recently, Hong Kong included wildlife, illegal wildlife trade and wildlife crimes into a serious crime and the ordinance of serious crime. So that will increase the penalties, that will increase the amount of investigations that is done behind every single seizure. And that also gives more incentives for the inspectors to do and to like like to catch uh, illegal wildlife crime. So um, so yeah, I think that's that's an encouraging fact. And I think if more and more countries join this um, this idea mm. of that wildlife crimes and illegal wildlife trade is a serious crime and, and must be severely punished, then we can see higher levels of compliance, higher levels of enforcement, more. Uh, more funding and more resources put into these kind of, of efforts. So yeah. um, I think that was very encouraging. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this this is a, a fabulous segue onto uh, one of my next questions, which was, you know, how do we overcome these problems in the industry, and and what are some of the what are some of the tools that we can use to do that? So something that you mentioned earlier, Diego, was all these you know different levels of governance. So you've got kind of like the international level, but then you've also got you know the groups of people on the ground and the need to work at all these different levels to tackle uh, the problems of the fin trade sort of in their entirety so I wondered if we could maybe talk about some of those things in a little bit more detail um so I know we we talked we touched on uh the research there but I just wanted to you know ask what the how important is it to you know, fill these gaps with the available, with the science and with the data. So, so, so what can we do or what scientific research still needs to be done 
you know, to to help combat some of these some combat some of these problems. And I know Diego, you're you're doing you're doing some of this right right now. Yeah. So, so as I mentioned before, during during my PhD, we developed tools that allow uh, law enforcement to detect illegal sidestrade trade in in fins and meat and other products that are sometimes are not that easy to identify visually. Mm. So Hong Kong, for example, is doing the work where they identify fins visually when it's very easy. If they have doubts whether one fin is coming from a side-resisted species or not, they can use our DNA toolkit and they can, they can have an answer from DNA within three hours to know whether it's a side-resisted species or not. Um, there's uh, shark fin guides that allow them to identify fins uh, visually mm-hmm. that are very, very useful, low cost, and, you know, it's, it's very simple to do. Um, so in terms of research, I know a lot of my colleagues are working on, on bycatch reduction methods, and I think that's very key for, mm-hmm. for sharks around the world. Like, find a way that we don't catch them as often as we do when it's unintentional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and also, you know, there's an added element to that as well as is, is, is working with the the actual fisheries themselves, the local communities as well that rely on these industries because, um, you know, I see the argument quite a lot of people saying that, you know, if this is so bad for sharks, why don't we just, you know, place a blanket ban on on shark fisheries? But you know, a lot of local communities, especially in developing nations, they they very very heavily rely on these fisheries you know, for, to sustain their livelihood. So, you know, I guess in a way, a, a, a part of tackling the problem is also working with these communities directly as well and communicating the science with them also, as well as the, the, the national and, and international governments too. Right. When you, when you put into the mix, the social dynamics and the social importance of, uh, for, uh, as food, for and food security for many of the mm. of the communities in in developing countries that that becomes even a more complicated issue to solve yeah absolutely um and when we're talking about science as well one of the trickiest things is actually you know create translating science into policy so i wondered ali if i could ask you a little bit about this because you know through the shark trust you do a lot of work with with governments and i just wanted to ask you about some of the challenges associated with that because i I know it must it, it is hugely challenging is translating that science into into successful policy Absolutely. And um, I think, you know, <laughs> as Diego's mentioned, this is an incredibly complicated issue. There are so many factors at, at play, whether you're talking about food security or whether you're talking about a species in decline in a threat status, critically endangered or otherwise. Um, but one of, the, one of the biggest challenges we have is a disconnect between the fisheries management ministries within countries and the environment ministries. And um, we've been talking about things like CITES, you've also got the Convention on Migratory Species. So you have these wildlife vehicles, um, which are generally dealt with by the environment ministries. They're often um, decisions, political based decisions based on good science, but political decisions that um, are addressed by a voting scenario. So you can get species listed. And I'm not saying it's not a fight, um, the species that that Diego mentioned earlier, those commercial species, it took uh, a number of years to get some of those listed on CITES, a number of of 
of rounds of CITES um, meetings, conference of parties to get those listed. But the key thing then is what you do next. So the listing is, is, is one part of that process. And we then need to see these countries, these parties who have um, championed at times these species to then take the necessary additional steps. And so that creates an even more complicated environment that we're working, we're working within. Um, but it is really important to persevere on these issues and to hold countries to account. So ensure that um, within the EU, they adopted Fins Naturally Attached. We then need to see that there's an appropriate level of, of port inspection. Are infractions being identified? Um, to what degree is that occurring? So the EU vessels, they are banned from removing shark fins at sea globally. So this makes the enforcement globally a lot easier. Um, and that relates then to their domestic fisheries as well. But we need to see this flow out into other countries, whether we need to um, be assisting countries in um, updating their domestic regulations or using the, the fisheries management organisations to assist in that process as well. So it's a, it's a multifaceted issue, really, um, but incredibly important to continue to work through that process and to realise that the listing of species on, for example, CITES is just the start of the journey for that species. Mm, absolutely. And then kind of related to that, you've got this additional level of the public to the general public and the yeah. consumer, um, you know, which we talked about right at the very, very beginning of this podcast. Um, and I imagine for a lot of people sitting at home that have just listened to this entire podcast about how complex and difficult this issue is you know maybe wondering what they at home can do I'd, to help i'd like to say that to your listeners if you're inspired to you know hopefully by the fact that you're listening to this episode if you're inspired to help in shark conservation there are a great number of really positive groups out there looking for assistance with their campaigns um currently through the shark league and the rally for makos campaign there's, uh, if you look on social media, if you Google Shark Lee, Google Rally for Makos, you'll find multiple opportunities to add your voice to um, a species that really needs urgent management. And those opportunities are now. We have key fisheries meetings coming up. This is a CITES listed species. It is a species that turns up in Diego's cat food. It really, really needs um, the scientific advice to be upheld. That is no retention in the North Atlantic. And we, we, really value citizens from around the world adding their voice to this process. Yes, definitely. There is so much that you can do. Um, and I do have one final question before I let you go. I know, Diego, you are literally just about to board your flight. But very quickly, I just wanted to ask, if you could be any species of shark and ray, in the world, what would you be and why? So, Diego, we'll come to you first. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a difficult one, but giving all, everything we spoke and giving the, the terrible trends that we have spoken uh, right now, I would like to be like a very un, like un, understudy and an unknown species from the deep water where fisheries don't occur so I can live a long and happy life. <laughs> I think that would be that would be my my answer. If I if I choose any any other shark, 
uh, that is more common, uh, chances are that I wouldn't live a long and happy life. <laughs> <laughs> that's both um, that's both depressing and, and funny at the same time. <laughs> but I completely get where you're coming from. Just kind of hide hide out in the deep, deep sea where no one can get Hide out in the deep, deep sea where no one can find me, no one can fish me, and I'll be happy for many, many years. Um, Ali, how about you? Oh, how can I follow Diego's comment there? <laughs> how can I follow that? Um, and as, as we said right at the beginning of this conversation, asking asking anyone in our community what their favourite shark is is really really unfair. Um, I think today, given given the, the week that that we've been through with so much um, activity on our current campaigns, I fancy being a pajama shark. <laughs> that will be it. Time for bed. <laughs> Pyjama shark is definitely a good choice. And not quite what you're, what, not quite, I did panic when you said that at the beginning of the episode, but it's not quite what your favourite shark is. It's just what you would be at this moment in time, which for me just change, changes on an hourly basis. Exactly. How I'm feeling, so. <laughs> um, but anyway, I will, I will let you both go, but it, thank you so, so much for your time and for giving such detailed answers to these questions. Um, it's been so fantastic to talk to both of you and have a safe flight, Diego. <laughs> and just like that, we've reached the end of our episode on the fin trade. And wow, did we cover a lot of ground in an hour. Finning and the shark trade are such complex issues with many different facets to them. And it was so incredibly interesting and valuable to learn from Diego and Ali's expertise. If you would like to find out more about them, and I'm pretty certain that you do, you can find links to them, their work, and the organisations that they work for in the show notes of this episode. I've also popped in links to the two papers on shark declines and overfishing that they referenced. As Ali said, I would highly recommend giving them a read. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one and leave us a nice little review on iTunes. This just helps more people to find us and find out about how amazing sharks are, which, you know, who doesn't want that? And if you would like a question answered on the podcast or you just want to say hi, please feel free to get in touch by emailing isla at saveourseas.com. A massive thank you to our amazing guests, Diego and Ali, for their time. To David Knight, who provided the brilliant jingle you can hear right now, and to you at home for listening. Have a awesome week, and I'll see you next time.